Well, hey, I want to begin tonight with a simple question for you. What do you think of when you hear the word king? K-I-N-G. What are the things you think of when, when you think about king? King Solomon. That's my king. What else? What do you think of? Like, what was that? King Elvis, the king of rock and roll, right? How about the king of pop? Who was that? Michael Jackson. What else do you think of when you think of king? K-I-N-G. A crown, all right. A castle, maybe. Burger King. Maybe like, you know, I think of maybe like uh, King Cobra. Uh, King-size bed. Alaskan King Crab. Maybe like King George, King Richard III, King Louis XVI, King uh, Henry VIII. BB King, all right. All right, well, here's another question for you. Yeah, King Snake, that's always good. How about this other question? What makes a king a king? Everyone talk at the same time. That works really well. Birthright, royalty, power, size? You say size? Like a. I guess Jabba the Hutt was a kind of a king, too. He had some size. Bloodline, food chain, top of the food chain, ordination. What's that? Coronation. Followers. All right, these are good. So, like authority and power, force, responsibility. Well, here we are on Wednesday nights, and we are in the book of Daniel. We just started a couple of weeks ago. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, the most powerful king in the land was named King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He happens to have a dream. And this dream that he has is so unsettling that he gathers all the people together, all of his wise guys, all the astrologers, magicians, and fortune tellers, and he brings them together and says, I need your help. I need you to tell me about this dream that I had and interpret it for me. And since King Nebuchadnezzar is a very powerful guy and gets what he wants when he wants it, he tells these wise guys, uh, if you don't deliver, I'm going to rip you apart limb from limb. Ouch, right? Well, they can't deliver. And so Nebuchadnezzar sends out one of his servants, Arioch, to clean house, to dispose of all of these wise guys. This hit list that Arioch, the servant, is carrying also has the names of Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And remember, what is Daniel doing here in, in Babylon? Well, Daniel and his pals are, are part of the exiles from Judah. They've been taken from their homeland, and here they are in a strange and foreign land called Babylon. They're at the initial stages of what's called the Babylonian captivity. Here they are, far away from their homeland. Their homeland has been destroyed. They're in present-day Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar is on the throne. He's the powerful king. But the question I want you to consider tonight, what I want you to think about tonight is, who is my king? 
Who is my king? I invite you to stand with me as we begin to read from the book of Daniel tonight. If you are able to stand, we stand here to revere the word of God. It's changed my life. Maybe it's changed yours. It's transforming. It's changed culture and people and hearts for for centuries. This is what it says in Daniel chapter 2 verse 24. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Escort me to the king and I will disclose the interpretation to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you tonight. And we thank you and praise you. We ask, Lord, tonight that we would truly see who is king in our lives. We ask for you to do some rearranging in our lives, some prioritizing, some heart change and life change. We love you with all our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Daniel goes to see Arioch, who's the the hitman. He is the servant of the king. And he says, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. That includes me too, Daniel. I like my arms and legs where they are at this current time. But escort me to the king and I will disclose the interpretation to him. So verse 25 continues. So Arioch quickly ushered Daniel into the king's presence, saying to him, I have found a man from the captives of Judah who can make known the interpretation to the king. The king then asked Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I saw as well as its interpretation? So Daniel here is rushed before the most powerful man in Babylon. He's rushed before the most powerful man in the ancient Near East at this particular time. He's brought into the king's presence. And I want you to imagine this. He enters into the realm of luxury and extravagance. Archaeologists have uncovered vast treasures from this day and age here. Uh, Stone reliefs and statues of all sorts of things. Lions and chariots and dragons and kings and battles. And and we can't forget, uh, here's here's a dragon of Marduk, one of the uh, Babylonian gods. And we cannot forget Lamassus. Uh, The Lamassu is probably one of the most fascinating things to me. Uh, Lamassu has the, it's a deity that would supposedly protect you. It had the face of a, of a man, the body of a lion or an ox, and the wings of a bird. Here's a picture of me this summer at the Louvre in Paris, standing next to one of these gigantic creatures. This actually happens to be from the Assyrians who were actually in present-day Iraq, before the Babylonians, but this is a similar item, a protective deity within their worldview. So what Daniel would be walking through would be halls or, or uh, through a castle with all of these sculptures, these stone reliefs all over the place. He's entering into the world of luxury and extravagance. And he comes before the king 
And the king asks him a question. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I saw? As well as its interpretation. And I love the response of Daniel here. I love what he does. He gives credit where credit is due. In his humble response to the king, verse 27 says, Daniel replied to the king, The mystery that the king is asking about is such that no wise men, astrologers, magicians, or diviners can possibly disclose it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I have an Aramaic word to teach you tonight. You may think, wait, Aramaic? I thought we were in the Old Testament here. The, The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Well, that's correct, except for some portions of the Old Testament that were written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca, the common language, the common tongue of the ancient Near East. Now, Aramaic is not at all that different from Hebrew. The main differences are, have to deal with vowel shifting and the placement of the definite article. Basically, how you say the gets changed from when you go to Hebrew, from Hebrew to Aramaic. Aramaic and Hebrew are very, very similar. And the word that I want to teach you tonight in Aramaic is raz. Everybody say raz. Raz. You got to roll your tongue. Raz. Raz is here translated as mystery. Raz, or as we see here, mystery, is actually borrowed from Persian language. It's found nine times in the Bible. All nine of those times are in the Old Testament. And all nine of those times are in the book of Daniel. Raz, the exact sense of it, uh, meaning mystery or something like that, is actually a mystery. The exact uh, sense of it, because it appears to be this type of a mystery that cannot be determined through reason or conventional wisdom, but only through divine revelations. Basically, Raz is a mystery that can only be displayed or determined by God, through God. This is only something that God can determine. Now, I want to put the brakes on here. I want, to, I want to pause for a moment as we reflect about mystery. And I want to do some table talk. I want you to talk to the people around you and address the following question. What are some mysteries that you don't have answers for? I want to start with maybe something generic that you're willing to share, like, why in the world do I have an appendix? That's pretty general. But then maybe... Take that step of, of bravery and courage and maybe share something personal. Like, why in the world am I going through so much suffering? And talk about it. All right? Ready, go. All right, who's got a good mystery? Something general, maybe, that they would be willing to share. Yeah. A camera? Like, how does a camera work? All right. Any engineers in here? They might be able to help you with the camera. Yeah, Kyle or Willem. Both you guys raise your hand. Where the what? Single socks. We used to call them lone soldiers. Why are the crowns on the table? That's a good one. All right. How about uh, one more right here? 
Why were there dinosaurs? Because they're awesome, probably. I think that's the easiest mystery to solve. That's a good question. All right, uh, does anyone maybe want to share something personal? Don't point it like, hey, like they said this. Uh, I don't know. Does anybody want to or no? Yeah. You want to know what God looks like. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Anything else personally anyone would want to share? Yes, Diane. Yeah. Anything else? One more? One more? Yes, Veronica. Yeah, why, why can't we get the answers clearly, you know, when we want them, right? Hear him. Yeah, that's a good, good mystery. I don't know. Well, we've got Arioch, who's this servant who's got the hit list. He's supposed to go take care of these wise men. But, but he begins to see Daniel as the solution to the king's problem. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, begins to see Daniel in the same way. But Daniel, what he does is fascinating. He quickly redirects the attention off of himself and places it where it belongs on God, who reveals mysteries. Daniel proclaims that God reveals, and in verse 28b through 30, and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the times to come. The dream and the visions you had while lying on your bed are as follows. As for you, O king, while you were in your bed, your thoughts turned to the future things. The revealer of mysteries has made known to you what will take place. As for me, this mystery was revealed to me, not because I possess more wisdom than any other living person, but so that the king may understand the interpretation and comprehend the thoughts of your mind. Do you hear the humility within Daniel's response? The deflection of honor and prestige, even the deflection of personal ability. Daniel assures the king here again that it's God who is responsible for any interpretation. Thus, Daniel gave God all the glory. Just like Joseph gave God the glory when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams back in Genesis 41 Verse 16, he, he gave praise to the king, just as Daniel gives praise to the king. Well, well, who is king in your life? To me, it's absolutely clear that God is the king in Daniel's life. But the problem is, we might not be as similar to Daniel as we would like to think. You know, when you, you think about Bible characters, maybe when you're reading the Bible, you know what, I'm a lot like this person. I'm a lot like her. I'm, I'm a lot like him. I hope that we aren't too quick to say, you know what, I think I'm like in my character, in my demeanor, I think I'm really like that guy, Jesus. You know, pretty much. No, 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 no. If I'm honest with you, if I'm honest with myself, if I'm honest with God, I'm, I'm probably more like Judas. Or Thomas, or Jonah, or a whole host of other guys who don't have it all together. Maybe we don't give credit where credit is due. I know I don't. And I know I, I got to get better at that. Uh, maybe we don't admit that uh, 
everything that we do and are able to accomplish for good is actually just because God has, has done it and has enabled us to do it. Maybe we give ourselves too much credit and we give ourselves the titles of king and queen. You know, we uh, adorn our heads with a crinkled paper Burger King crown and say, check it out, look at me, I'm a king or I'm a queen. And then we enthrone ourselves high and lofty on a rickety wooden high chair. Say, look at me, I'm a king. Look at me, I'm a noble queen. Or we crown our kids king. We put them up there on that high stool. We put uh, our job, our bank account, our fame, even our church right there. But we got to take off that crown. Get off the high chair because you look ridiculous. A wise man once told me you cannot lift up Jesus and yourself at the same time. We got to give credit where credit is due. It belongs to God. There's only one king and he's seated high and lofty. And no, you cannot sit in his chair and no, you cannot wear his crown. Because his chair is far too high and his crown is way too much for you to bear. He's the king. It's his job. So let's do our job. Our job is to praise the king. You say, why? What has he done for me lately? Uh, He gave you breath. He gave you strength. He gave you ability. He gave you hope. He gave you purpose. We praise God as the king because he is mighty. He is wonderful. He is miraculous. He is worthy. He is holy. He is good. He's the God who who has set our whole world into motion. He's the God who has given sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute. He's given strength to the paralytic. He's given us hope and boldness when we've gotten none of it. He's the one who empowers us to be brave when we feel like we'd rather just give up. God is the one who who transcends space and time. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere at the same time. He's faithful. And he's honest with us even when we don't want to be honest with ourselves. God encourages us when we feel like we've completely failed. He's given us the ability to endure the toughest situations and and we never thought we could get through. And we look back and say, wow, God, look what you did in my life because I couldn't do that. No way. But God has. And I think God is worthy of praise. Daniel gives glory to the one true king. By the power of our God and king, he interprets the dream. Verse 31 says, You, O king, were watching as a great statue, one of impressive size and extraordinary brightness was standing before you. Its appearance caused great alarm. Now, I want to pause here and do some more group work and answer the mystery that was brought to me. Why in the world are there crowns on our table? We're like adults. Uh, I have some fine gentlemen who are um, stepping in as Vanna Whites today. And they're going to pass out to you 
something that you're going to color in. So what I want you to do is read Daniel chapter 2, verse 32 through 35 and illustrate the great statue. So Daniel clearly communicates to King Nebuchadnezzar what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. The king had been viewing a really large statue that was standing before him, and Daniel describes it in detail. Here in verse 32 through 33, it says, As for that statue, its head was of fine gold, its chest and arms were were of silver, its belly and thighs were of bronze, its legs were of iron, its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. So here's a... I did one, too, uh, to, to have fun as well. I was able to color in the lines as best as I could. It's difficult. I haven't colored with crayons since I was, like, three. So uh, it's a new experience. Actually, I did this activity when we were going through the book of Acts, too. Sometimes we have to dummy it down. So you've got a head of fine gold, you've got a chest and arms of silver, abs and thighs of bronze, the lower legs of iron, and then the feet are a combination of both iron and clay. Well, what's the deal with this gigantic multi-metaled Ken doll, basically? Well, a vast amount of ink has been spilled over the centuries trying to determine what's up with the statue. Next week, we're going to look at what each of these substances might represent. Uh, You know, but uh, it's hard to, to be certain about it. Some say it has to do with the empires, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Or perhaps this is referring to regimes or kings within the Babylonian empire. It'll be a challenge because the Aramaic word that gets used here can describe a whole host of things. It can describe a royal authority or realm or individual reign or empire. But tonight, what we're going to do is just look at these substances and see what they might mean at face value. You know, some have said that there's a decreasing value in substances as you go from top to bottom. So obviously gold is more precious than clay or else we would all be pretty rich. That's an interpretation or that the image was top heavy because gold is pretty Pretty heavy, or that the substances progress from softest to hardest. But I don't know. Maybe it's too. That's too complicated for me. I just look at in the Old Testament, various materials have significant meanings. Gold and silver are standard symbols for what is majestic and for what is precious in political and religious contexts. Bronze and iron represent something that's strong, something that's hard. So these four metals together, gold and silver and bronze and iron, they they sum up the variety of valuable natural resources and also a valuable treasure. So the statue embodies a multifaceted power and splendor and strength and impressiveness But as our eyes lower down the statue, a bizarre feature appears. A fatal weakness at the feet. 
a combination of clay and iron. Clay in the Old Testament represents weakness, transience. It's the opposite of political power and strength implied by these four metals. This obviously threatens the stability of this multi-metaled Ken doll towering above. Verse 34 continues, You were watching as a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its iron and clay feet, breaking them in pieces. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold were broken in pieces without distinction and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. You know what chaff is? It's like grain or wheat, and you rub it in your hands and it goes right in the air, kind of like a, a dandelion. And that the wind carries away. Not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a large mountain that filled the entire earth. As Nebuchadnezzar beheld this image before him, he saw a stone that that comes just flying out of the air and smashes the statue's feet, and it crumbles to little pieces. A single stone is used to exploit a fatal weakness within this gigantic statue. But what's interesting is that this stone doesn't hit the head like... David and Goliath, but rather its feet. It wasn't just that this awesome statue gets toppled over, but in an instant, it crumbles to pieces and is turned to dust. The wind whipped up the powder and blew it all away. The rock then that had struck the image begins to grow larger until it fills the whole scene. A mountain that dominates the whole world. Now, this is common within the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. And I can't help but share a passage from Isaiah that talks precisely about this. About a mountain. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2 says, In the future the mountain of the Lord's temple will endure as the most important of mountains. And will be the most prominent of hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the temple of the God of Jacob. So he can teach us his requirements and we can follow his standards. For Zion will be the center for moral instruction. The Lord will issue edicts from Jerusalem. He will judge disputes between nations. He will settle cases for many peoples. I love this line right here. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. All these instruments for war are being turned to instruments for agriculture. Oh, and they will not train for war. Oh, descendants of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's guiding light. This dream image of Nebuchadnezzar, this image of costliness, this image of strength is brought to dust. But the mountain of the Lord is lifted high. It's established forever. That's my king. So who is king in your life? And how do you make God king in your life? I'd rather have a A king in my life who's able to pluck up mountains and plant them somewhere else. I'd rather have a a king who can 
initiate space and time. How, how do you make God king of your life? Step one, I think, is surrendering. I think it means giving up that control. And I, I can't do it my way anymore. I got to get rid of this I'm always right mentality. Because if you don't, you're your little king still. Sitting on your high chair with your Burger King crown. How do we do this? We build a relationship. It begins first with surrendering. We build this relationship. And, and it's, it's more than codependency on God. It's complete dependency on God. That's how it begins. And then we live a life of obedience. And what does that mean? That sounds like God wants to boss us around. No, it means to love God and love people. To love this world one person at a time. To trust and to serve and to have gratitude. That's what it means to have God as our king. So tonight, let's ask God, maybe where in our lives do we need to surrender? Where do we need to give up control? Because God will, will make sure that he's number one in your life. You put something else up, it's going to get cut down. Our God is a mighty God. And he's asking for us to follow him with all that we've got. To put our whole hope and whole heart in him. I'm tired of doing it half-heartedly. I'm tired of just thinking that, that Sunday and Wednesday is enough. Maybe you are too. I want to make God king of every day, of every moment. Of every circumstance, whether they're good or bad, I don't want to leave God out. Let's be completely dependent on Him this week. Let's see what happens. Would you pray with me? God, we believe that you cast out all fear and anxiety, so I pray that you would embolden us, that you would physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually put courage inside of us. That we would be your people. That we would fear not for you have overcome. And Lord that the things that have kept us bound up. Will be brought to nothing. God I ask for forgiveness. For us. As we have put ourselves in your place. That we've tried to sit on your throne. But Lord it's just a high chair. And our crown is. Wrinkly piece of paper. You are our king, we declare. And to you belongs all glory and all honor and all praise in the church and in our lives. So Lord, to you, we ask you to rearrange things. That we would reprioritize to make you number one. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. And the lesson that you have taught us. So Lord, send us out, we pray. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight, guys. Don't forget, we've got foot golf signups. We've got Mexico stuff in the back. And also, we've got baptisms going on this Sunday. So I hope that you'll join us at either 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings.